Have you ever lied to the fire chief? Have you ever pantsed yourself in front of your teacher? Have you ever hit yourself in the face with a baseball bat? Have you ever jumped your bike into a tree? Felt like school was the worst place on earth? Or secretly felt that it was only a matter of time before you finally let everyone down? Have you felt like a fraud, quit too easily, or impulsively spoken words you'd later regret? Ted has too. See if you can relate. Operating on the belief that people need to feel that we are all fellow travelers, Ted unravels a long and winding tangle of experiences that led to a discovery that changes life in many ways. In doing so, his goal is to help the reader see that being different doesn't have to mean being alone. Follow along with Ted as he takes you on a journey that is sometimes hilarious, sometimes tragic, but always intensely personal. Raised in a family where ADHD was the norm, Ted did not discover the explanation for his pattern of impulsive behavior, disorganization, forgetfulness, and chronic underachievement until he was in graduate school. Described as a view inside a therapy session, Ted's story unveils not only the surface level struggles and complications that arise from having a brain wired for chaos, but delves deeper into the fallout that comes from always being the kid who was standing when everyone else was sitting. Chapter 1. Begin with the ending. Who really cares about another memoir? I mean, it's one thing if the person you're reading about is famous or has done something really amazing, but why would anyone want to read someone's collection of stories and anecdotes and observations if they don't even know the person? Plus, it's a super fancy-sounding word for something that could also be called stuff I remembered. Having said that, I've read lots of memoirs and biographies and historical fiction, plus all of the Black Stallion books by Walter Farley. Have you ever read those? If you haven't guessed, they're about a black stallion lovingly named The Black by his adopted owner. Really? Not just black or blacky? The Black. I'm going to go and ride The Black. Has anyone seen The Black? The movie was all right, but it was a bit slow moving at first. So when I tried to watch it with my kids, they felt like they were being tortured with a hot poker, which is actually a pretty gruesome thing if you think about it. Also, it's funny that a poker is called a poker. It's like someone said, what's that thing for? Uh, it's for poking the fire. What's it called? It doesn't have a name. Should we call it something? Sure, any ideas? Hmm, how about poker? Do you mean the poker? No, that's too fancy. Anyway, memoirs. I began my career in counseling working at a residential treatment center for men struggling with substance abuse problems. I was naive and armed with good grades, and I thought I could make a difference by telling them what I had learned. I was repeatedly asked by the men, as they were about to explain their feelings and experiences to me, if I had ever struggled with substance abuse. I would defensively answer that I had not, but that I didn't think it would be a barrier to my helping them. I asked if they had cancer, would they only see a doctor who had had cancer, or would they trust the training and education of a doctor who is an expert in cancer treatment? Well, this simple argument won me some points, and over the years I was able to help many guys and their families, I was missing a fundamental aspect of helping from both a professional and non-professional point of view. A big part of helping is relating. It wasn't until I began to relate my own addictive behavior and tendencies to the addiction experiences of my clients that I began to really connect with their feelings of confusion, hopelessness, isolation, anger, and shame. It wasn't until I began to see myself reflected in my clients that they began to see themselves reflected in me. 
That's when I became able to give them something that a textbook or a grade on an exam could never give them. Hope. They needed to see that what I was saying, what they were being taught, had roots in the real world. They had to know that they could overcome. There is great power and relief in hearing someone else speak of your experiences, thoughts, and feelings with first-hand knowledge, because he or she has shared them. It is especially liberating when those experiences, thoughts, and emotions had previously left you feeling like you didn't belong, like an outsider hiding on the inside. As my career has progressed and evolved, I have always made an effort to see myself in my clients and hope that they can see themselves in me. That's why I'm sharing some of the experiences that have brought me to where I am. My hope is that you will see yourself in me and that if you do, you won't feel so alone. I grew up with an ADHD brain without knowing I had one. It's kind of like growing up with a superpower disguised as a giant zit. It's embarrassing and painful and draws attention for all the wrong reasons, but when you finally understand it, actually, it's not really like a zit, because in order for that analogy to work, there would have to be an upside to having a giant zit. Having lived through puberty for a few decades, I can tell you there are virtually no upsides to having a giant zit. So come up with your own analogy then if you think you're so smart. It's like when I was 19 years old, I lived in a different city and my roommate and I traveled everywhere on bikes because we couldn't afford any other way to get around. His bike was a high quality ride and he was an experienced rider. My bike was a piece of crap and I had no idea what I was doing. My bike had a problem where the front brakes were almost always on just a little bit. Because I had no idea what I was doing, Rather than fix it, I just rode everywhere with the brakes on. I'm not sure why my roommate didn't offer to help me, but I imagine I must have mentioned the issue more than once as he would race off ahead of me and then wait for me to catch up, looking annoyed and bored. Anyway, one day a friend took us out for dinner, and I happened to mention this issue I was having with my bike, and he offered to get it fixed for me, since he knew a guy. I happily handed it over to him, and he brought it back the next day, good as new. I can tell you that all the time riding around with the extra resistance of the unwanted brakes had strengthened my legs to the point where now I was the one waiting impatiently for my roommate to catch up. Growing up with undiscovered ADHD was kind of like that. Things were harder for me than for other people, but all along I was nursing an inner strength that I didn't know I had. It wasn't until I finally understood myself, why I was the way I was, and did the things I did, and forgot the things I forgot, that my strength became something I could use. Those of us with ADHD have brains that can often remember conversations from decades ago, but can't remember to flush the toilet, that can hear a slight ticking noise at the end of the hall when trying to watch a movie, but can't hear the person who's standing right in front of us speaking, that generate ideas like popcorn poppers, but follow through on those ideas like, well, something that doesn't follow through at all. I want people who have been blessed and cursed with this brain, to be able to laugh at our flaws instead of seeing them as evidence of inadequacy and unworthiness. I want us to be able to accept that because we are exceptional at some stuff, we are terrible at other stuff, and that there's no shame in that. I want us to have the courage to proclaim to the world, I'm a weirdo. Now that's a funny word if you think about it. We take an adjective and attach O to the end of it to make it a noun. So if I'm strong, then I am a strong-o, or if I'm hungry, then I'm a hungry-o. Actually, that sounds like a real snack food or breakfast cereal or something, but apparently it's not because I googled it and there isn't any type of food called hungry-os. I even tried different spellings. 
The closest I could come up with was a restaurant in Marshalltown, Iowa, called Oh Hungry's. Uh, what the heck? Their menu says you can get a large pizza for $5 or a filet mignon for $12. Now that's a sweet deal. In January of 2018, I had the opportunity to prepare and deliver a speech at a TEDx event in Langley, British Columbia, Canada. The title of my talk was Giving Up and Getting Up. It was about the dual tendencies of people with ADHD to give in to learned helplessness, believing that failure is inevitable, but also to get back up and try something else. The video is on YouTube with a disappointingly small number of views. Anyway, I'm no stranger to public speaking and teaching, and I thought that the opportunity to give a talk on my ADHD experience in school and life would be fun and helpful. It turned out to be incredibly stressful. In fact, that was kind of what the talk was about, so I'm not going to spoil it by telling the whole story twice. If you want to know about it, go watch it. I bring it up because during the talk, something happened that is so quintessentially ADHD that I have to share it. It illustrates both the frustrating and the wonderful aspects of this complicated operating system that I've been given. My talk ended with two stories back to back, with a small but important point made in between them. As I finished the first of these two stories, my mind went completely blank. I felt a surge of panic as I stared out into the combination of blinding spotlight and darkness where the audience was allegedly seated. I paused for a moment and tried to buy some time by repeating the last line of the story, hoping it would jog my memory. It didn't. And in that millisecond, I decided to just move ahead with the concluding story. As I started to tell this story, I realized that the piece I had forgotten was actually critical to its ending, which allowed me to finally remember the missing piece. However, I had now started the final story and couldn't go back to the spot where I had gotten stuck without making the talk really choppy and lame. I debated whether I should just leave it out altogether and decided that this was not possible as the final line of the story wouldn't have nearly the impact without this principle. All the while I was having this internal dialogue, I was still telling the story, getting closer to the end where the train would either pull into the station and stop or go crashing through and derail. Just as I approached the critical point, my brain found a way to wrestle the principle into the last line, allowing the story to make sense and drive the point home. I ended my talk with relief and turned to make my way off stage before the applause could even catch up. I love this story because it illustrates so many aspects of the ADHD brain. Creativity, forgetfulness, resourcefulness, anxiety, risk-taking, and to some degree, metacognition. I was telling a story while deciding how to tell the story and noticing that I was doing both while I was doing them. Is it any wonder that I had a hard time paying attention in school? Anyway, this book is full of these kinds of moments. Some of them were disastrous, and some of them were triumphant. Most of them were disastrous. But all of them count, which is something I try to get through to my clients. Nothing is all good or all bad. Our brains fall victim to the confirmation bias, which is the tendency to pay attention to and remember only the things that confirm what we already think. If we come to believe that we are stupid, awkward, or a failure, then we will compile a list of experiences that serve as evidence of this belief. We will also ignore all evidence to the contrary, and if we can't ignore it, we will twist it so that it still fits the belief. The only way to counteract this is to deliberately work on compiling contradictory evidence. It is not effective to counteract the belief that I am stupid by saying that I am not stupid, because there is evidence that I might be. Instead, I must acknowledge that sometimes I do some short-sighted, impulsive things, 
but at the same time, I must acknowledge that I also have the ability to make good, well-reasoned decisions. I hope you enjoy this journey through my journey. Chapter 2. Signs of Things to Come Even though my dad grew up in fairly urban settings, he spent many summers at his Uncle Grant's farm with his brother Tom playing cowboy. They helped out with the farm chores, but mostly spent a lot of time shooting gophers. Their grandparents were farmers, and their parents had grown up on farms, and I think this led them to identify with the cowboy-farmer image. Not only that, but my dad's innate, probably genetic, thirst for adventure, hard work, and the great outdoors led him to always skirt the line of Beverly Hillbilly. What this meant for me was a childhood full of the same type of adventure, hard work, up to a certain point, and outdoor exploits. When my parents were still young, with only a couple of boys, they rented a farmhouse while my dad was a university student. The landlord was a guy named Ming Wong, whom my dad talked about sometimes. I really liked the name Ming Wong because I was just a small kid and knew nothing about different cultures or languages. The name Ming Wong just sounded like a fun character. I think I might have met or seen him a few times, but I have no recollection of it beyond a passing impression. Years later, after we were long removed from the farmhouse, I remember hearing that Ming Wong was murdered in Vancouver. When I asked why, my dad hinted that Ming Wong was not always a person who was above board. I like to say Ming Wong still. It sounds weird to refer to him as Wong or just Ming, so I have to say Ming Wong every time. Also, is it kind of weird that my dad rented a house from someone he knew to be a bit shady? The farmhouse was located in a little rural suburb of Surrey, British Columbia called Cloverdale. Down the hill was an actual farm where my dad tried his hand at hobby farming. I remember the barn had a swing made from a barrel hung from the rafters. The barrel lay on its side with a hole cut out, making a perfect rocket ship shape. Because the rafters were high up in the ceiling of the barn, when that swing got going, it really went high. My mom swears it wasn't as high as I remember, but I have a distinct memory of going so high in that swing that I could see the farm cats scurrying around up in the hayloft. I had no fear of such things, focusing only on the thrill. My dad tried to raise some pigs in his spare time, which is so typical of my dad. My only memory of this attempt was when I went gleefully marching through the pig pen in my shoes, glorying in the mud until it grabbed hold of my shoes and wouldn't let go, which led me to do the only logical thing, walk around in the mud in my socks. My dad also tried to raise a calf named Rosie. He must have bought her from someone or at the auction or something, but she lived down the road at the farm. I remember one day, however, my dad got a phone call telling him that Rosie had escaped the farm and was making her way down the road. My dad must have been watching us kids because we all piled into the car to chase after her. Of course, we eventually caught her, and then my dad was left with a dilemma. He had to lead the calf back to the farm, but he also had a couple of kids and a car. Of course, similar to my decision-making process with the pig pen, he did the most logical and efficient thing possible. He put the calf into the backseat of the car and drove her back to the farm. I remember thinking at the time that this was about the most awesome thing I had ever seen in my young life. When I was four years old, living in a little place in the British Columbia Kootenays called Castlegar, my mom's friend was over for a visit. She'd brought her son, another active four-year-old boy who I sometimes played with at church. We lived in a fairly rustic setting. Okay, that's an understatement. Our backyard was a steep hill covered with trees and dense bush, the perfect place for four-year-old boys to play completely unsupervised. I remember standing above my playmate, slightly up the hill from where he was squatting, 
poking through the leaves and other foliage on the ground. Somehow, I ended up with a large rock in my hands. Yes, hands. It was big enough that it took two hands for me to lift. I don't remember if he looked at me at all, but there's a whisper of memory of him gazing up at me where I stood holding the rock aloft. He had a puzzled look on his face, as if questioning whether I was actually going to do what I appeared to be set to do. The answer to his unspoken question came abruptly and painfully as I dropped the rock on his head. Predictably, the scene shifts in my memory to the living room with me standing in front of my mom and her friend. Teddy hit me with the rock, my friend cried. I remember my mom's look of disbelief, probably mingled with embarrassment, as she grasped for explanations as to why her sweet little boy would intentionally drop a rock on someone's head. Teddy, why would you do that? she asked, partly in reproach and partly out of curiosity. My answer left her wanting more, I suppose, as I came up with the best explanation I could think of. I don't know. I knew nothing of the surrounding geography of Castlegar at the time, so as far as I was concerned, the world consisted of our house, the surrounding houses, and the trees and the neighbors. Also, there was the river. We had moved to the Kootenays because my dad got a job working for West Kootenay Power, a hydroelectric company that ran a few dams in the region. One of these dams was just down the railroad tracks from our house. I remember walking down there many times with my dad to stare at the incredible power of water as it poured through the open spillways. There were these big red and white balls suspended on the power lines over the river, and I was never sure why they were there, but they sure made me want to eat candy. There were a few kids in the neighborhood that I played with. One in particular was known, by my parents, as a notorious liar. I didn't know what they were talking about, but every time I passed on a story this friend had told me, my parents would gently encourage me not to believe everything she said. One time she told me that she had seen a cougar down by the dam. Since I had no idea what a cougar was, my brain created the most fearsome creature it could think of, and for some reason it came up with a skunk the size of a bear. As I mentioned, there were railroad tracks running in front of our house, and because it was the 1980s, there were no fences or gates or anything that would prevent us from playing or walking on the tracks. We appreciated this because it was a fun place to play and walk. One day, however, a tragedy was narrowly averted. My dad was working on something in the backyard when he heard the train horn blast. For some reason that we can only ascribe to the divine, a distinct thought came into his mind. Where's Steve? Luckily, he didn't hesitate and instead ran to the front of the house where he saw my little one-year-old brother, Steve, standing on the train tracks with a train coming fast. My dad sprinted the distance from the house to the tracks just in time to scoop Steve up and whisk him to safety. I'm sure that when he told my mom about it later, he downplayed its seriousness, but that incident could have changed our family forever. Other memories I have from this house near the brilliant dam include our massive sandbox that my dad made, building gigantic, to us, snowmen for my dad to ram with the car when he came home from work, which he did, and the first pet I remember, a small gray tabby cat named Puddy, who came trotting out of the bushes behind our house one day and welcomed herself into our home and family. My next younger brother, Mike, was the one who named her after Puddy Tat from the Tweety cartoons on Looney Tunes, which is weird because we had no TV and I have no idea where he would have ever heard of a cat named Putty before that. Putty fit right into our crazy little family, one day falling out of the second story window and surviving, even though she had a little bit of a limp for the rest of her life. Her closest brush with death, however, involved bath time. 
Of course, the stereotype of cats and water holds up in most cases because that's how stereotypes come to be, and Putty was no exception. However, one evening, it was not the water that almost did her in, but my good intentions. After Putty mysteriously fell into the bathtub, I thought I would let her outside to dry off. However, it was the middle of winter, and the temperature must have been near freezing. My mom noticed that she hadn't seen the cat for a while and asked if anyone knew where she was. This was when I proudly announced my altruistic act, and my mom rushed to open the back door where she found a soaking wet, freezing cold kitty who was probably wondering whether joining this family had been the best decision for her future. Like I said, though, she was made for us. When I was little, I sucked my thumb, as I believe all my siblings did, too. I remember one day waking up from a good night's sleep in this little house and racing to my mom and yelling, Mom, I didn't suck my thumb last night! I was so proud and so relieved and so happy. I guess I must have been trying for a while. If you think about it, it's kind of a strange-sounding thing to be addicted to. How hard is it to not suck your thumb? It doesn't taste good. There are no commercials for it on TV. There's no peer pressure involved. But for some reason, it's very difficult to quit. The reason is the same as it is for any and all addictions. It provides soothing. And once a brain that craves soothing has been soothed, it is very difficult to convince it to stop the activity that has soothed it. Anyway, I stopped all on my own and felt proud of myself. Another memory from this house is when my parents went away so that Mike could have corrective surgery on his eyes since he was born with severely crossed eyes that couldn't be corrected just by glasses or patches. While he was gone, my grandma and grandpa Levitt came to stay with us and this was when my grandma went too far and actually tried to parent me instead of just being a nice grandma who gave me candy and hugs. The result was that when it was time for her to leave, after my parents had come home, I refused to come out and say goodbye. Even when my mom tried to talk me into it. Even when my grandma came back into the house to talk to me, I refused to hug her or even talk to her. I remember her looking down at me and saying in her loud voice with a big smile on her face, You don't like me very much, do you? It's funny because I love my grandma my whole life, but I was not going to be bent or broken on this occasion. The irony is that the stubbornness that held me strong that day was probably inherited from her directly and passed down through my dad. When I was in kindergarten at Kinnaird Elementary in Castlegar, I remember standing in line outside the classroom before the start of school. That day, I had proudly brought my hard plastic dinosaur to school with me. It was a brown stegosaurus. I've always wondered if there's any scientific basis for the colors assigned to our reconstructions of dinosaurs, or if they are just arbitrarily assigned based on the artist's imagination. Anyway, there was this girl in my class who had a little bit of something in the corner of her mouth. It reminded me of some food, like toast, stuck to her face. She must not know that she has food on her face, I reasoned, because who would intentionally go to school, even kindergarten, with food stuck to her face? I also reasoned that it would be rude to outright tell her that she had food on her face or to ask what was stuck to her mouth. At the same time, my attention was magnetically drawn to the thing and I couldn't just ignore it or let it be. So, being the benevolently clever lad that I was, I determined the best way to address the situation was to have my dinosaur friend eat whatever was stuck to her. He's hungry, I proclaimed loudly and shoved the dinosaur into her face using the hard, sharp teeth 
curiously white, for an herbivore that didn't brush, to scrape the stuff off. She recoiled with a look of shock and horror, which quickly transformed to the closed eyes and exaggerated frown of an incoming but still silent burst of painful tears. When she finally exploded, I was caught completely off guard. What had I done? I didn't think it was that rough. Was it too rough? Then I heard another little girl yell, with what seemed like great pleasure, to the teacher at the head of the line. Teddy hit her in the face! Then the explanation came. Not to me, but to the teacher, as if I already knew the story. She has stitches in her face, and Teddy hit them with his dinosaur. On purpose! Stitches? I was even more confused. This was the first time I had ever seen stitches, little brown threads tied into a knot in the corner of her lip. In my mind, I collected data from my short years on Earth. That was the moment when I learned that stitches didn't look like they did in the comic books, little railroad tracks standing out from the skin in clear relief. Unfortunately, there were layers of pain to this experience. First, the idea that I was being accused of intentionally hurting this girl when I thought I was sparing her feelings. Second, the teacher not knowing the full story and me not having a voice to explain myself. And third, a deeper feeling of guilt that I hadn't known what stitches looked like. I remember thinking, how does everyone else know what stitches look like, but I don't? Is this something that I should have known? This question, in an infinite variety of iterations, repeated itself throughout my childhood and early adulthood. How does everyone else seem to know this thing? Am I supposed to know this thing? How come I don't know this thing? Of course, looking back now, I realized that there was no way I could have known what stitches looked like because I had never seen them before. Chapter 3. Mrs. Anderson is not nice. In grade 2, my teacher was Mrs. Anderson. I'm not sure what she really looked like, but in my mind's eye, she looks and sounds like the granny who owns Tweety Bird. Sweet and old, but then she pulls out an umbrella and beats the living daylights out of the cat who's trying to get her bird. Our desks were arranged in groups of four, two on each side, facing each other. Seating assignments were changed periodically. I have no idea who my deskmates were during this incident, but I remember kneeling up on my chair and leaning way over my desk, reaching out towards the desk of the kid who was sitting kitty-corner to me. I don't know why. I don't know if I was talking, helping, bugging, or just messing around. What I do know is that Mrs. Anderson did not like what I was up to and let me know, not with a gentle reminder or even a firm reprimand. Instead, she let me know with a hard smack across my butt. The smack hurt... The sound was loud, and everyone looked to see what had happened. The pain of the blow, however, was less than the pain of the humiliation, that my teacher, whom I'd had no previous bad experiences with, had betrayed me in such a terrible way. Later that same day, we were sitting on the carpet together as Mrs. Anderson read us a book. I don't know what the story was about, but I know that I sat in the front row and listened intently, at least until I became fascinated with the hem of Mrs. Anderson's dress. Absent-mindedly, I began to twist it gently in my fingers. I guess it was not quite as gentle as I thought, because once again, for all to see, Mrs. Anderson stopped her reading, looked down, and said, Why are you pulling on my dress? Of course, I had no explanation. What could I say? So I said nothing. So, I give you a spank, and you pull my dress. Hmm. Well, I guess that makes us even, she said. She had a twinkle in her eye, and I seemed to recognize her lame attempt at an apology but I remember thinking at the time, even, not even close. You know how sometimes you might be watching TV while eating chips with dip and absentmindedly dip the remote into the dip 
and try and change the channel with your chip? No? I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. Last night, my son just about brushed his teeth with polysporin because his mind was wandering somewhere else and reverted to its simple rule. Squishy stuff in tubes goes on the toothbrush. Anyway, when I was in grade two, which seems to have been a fairly disastrous year, this tendency came back to bite me in a major way. There was this little girl, Gina, who sat in front of me and who, in retrospect, was seriously troubled. I remember being horrified one time as she turned around and said, Hey, Teddy, look at this, and proudly displayed the thumbtack she had stabbed into her wrist. One day after school, Gina was being scolded by the teacher, good old Mrs. Anderson, that picture of warmth who had spanked me loudly in front of my class. I don't remember what Gina had allegedly done, but I'm sure that Mrs. Anderson was handling it with softness and all the compassion of a starving jackal. Outside the classroom, in the hallway, there was a little shelf where we hung our coats and backpacks and placed our outdoor shoes. It was the end of the day, and along with packing my bag and putting my coat back on, I needed to change from my indoor shoes to my outdoor shoes. I was distracted, though, eavesdropping as Mrs. Anderson ripped into Gina. While I was occupied with my nosiness, my brain went into autopilot, pulling my shoes off and placing them on the shelf. This is where autopilot became a problem and threatened to derail my already disastrous year. When else might you take off your shoes, you might wonder? How about when getting changed for gym, or having a bath, or getting ready for bed? Any number of these situations involve taking off your shoes. Unfortunately, they also involve taking off your pants, which is what I did. After placing my indoor shoes on the shelf, instead of putting on my outdoor shoes, I undid the button on my jeans, grabbed each side of my waistband, and pulled them down to my ankles, revealing my tidy whities to Mrs. Anderson and Gina, who was known for her discretion. I awoke from my eavesdropping trance as my pants hit my ankles and looked up in shock as Mrs. Anderson and Gina looked down and paused with their mouths hanging open. Quickly I yanked up my pants, abandoning all hope of appearing nonchalant. Mrs. Anderson, pillar of empathy, made an embarrassing comment that I can't remember and released Gina from her grasp. With her newfound freedom, Gina ran gleefully from our scene, straight out the double doors to the playground, yelling, Teddy pulled his pants down! Thankfully, it was after school and most of the kids had gone home, otherwise the story would have taken on much more life and followed me around for a while. Around the same age, I remember standing, facing a few kids in my class, and raising the scissors to my hair. On a tight budget with a million kids, my mom had learned the art of the bowl cut. As such, there was plenty of hair to work with. I'm not sure what I was trying to prove, but I proved it by snipping a big piece out of my bangs. With no mirror to check my aim, I guess I didn't realize the angle of the scissors or how much I was cutting. I just remember the looks of shock and horror on my classmates' faces as they saw what I had done. I immediately panicked, imagining getting in big trouble at home for doing it. Mrs. Anderson did not manage to lessen my fears as she took me down to the principal's office where, racked with sobs, I was forced to call my mom on the principal's phone and tell her what I had done. She responded in the best possible way, telling me it was no problem at all and wondering why they'd had me call her. Later, she took a picture in which I'm wearing a shirt with the word Calgary written repeatedly down one side. The shirt definitely steals the show in the picture and distracts attention from my error, just like my mom did by not making a big deal out of it. Chapter 4. Hey, let's kick the window. 
As you listen to these stories, you might notice a few themes. Impulse control problems, forgetfulness, embarrassment, physical injuries, and the like. Another recurring theme will be my brother Mike. While I had my share of impulsive adventures, we could fill volumes with Mike's near misses, which is getting to be a more and more outdated expression, filling volumes of things. I picture a large bookcase in a dark office, its shelves loaded with massive leather-bound books, volumes of stories, like volumes of encyclopedias. We had encyclopedias when I was younger. I remember on more than one occasion determining that I was going to read every volume and learn everything there was to know about stuff. I can't say that I remember any particular thing I learned, but that's probably because I never got through more than a few pages before something else grabbed my attention. I tried the same thing with the dictionary on more than one occasion, which is how I learned the word lugubrious, which means excessively sad. I haven't had much opportunity to work that into my daily conversation, but I hold out hope that one day the right moment will present itself and I'll be ready. Anyway, Mike, volumes. This is just a small slice of Mike and me working together as a team. You know those little windows that appear beside front doors? I think they're called side lights. They're often full of patterns and textures, which I imagine are designed to make it harder to see into the person's house. But I always just found them frustrating because, of course, I wanted to see into the person's house. Not seeing into their house was boring. I figured there must have been interesting things inside the house. Anyway, we had a window like this beside our own front door in Salmo. The glass was very frosted and had a bumpy texture, making it possible to only see a shadow of a person on the other side. One day, Mike was outside the window on the front porch and I was inside, in the front entryway. I'm not sure who started it or how, but I think for some reason I had locked Mike out of the house and wouldn't let him in the front door. I don't think it was mean-spirited, we were just playing a game or something. Mike dealt with this wrinkle in a very adaptive fashion, deciding, and I use that term generously as most of these types of actions are anything but calculated, that the best approach was to kick the door. Of course, this did not change my mind, so instead, Mike kicked the window. I thought this was great. So, from my safe perch inside the house, I kicked the window back. He then kicked it again, followed by my kick in response. I'm sure you can see where this is going. That's when my mom heard the noise and came and stopped us before anything bad could happen. No, she didn't. She was probably busy keeping someone else from lighting themselves on fire, so she was not able to intervene as Mike and I increased the intensity and tempo of our window kicking, one from the inside, one from the outside. Finally, the predictable conclusion was reached and the window shattered into little pieces. I remember feeling two things at the same time. Terror at the reaction that was sure to come from our parents, dad specifically, and shock that the window had broken. This is the stuff that low self-esteem is made of. Obviously, the window would break if we just kept kicking it, but that outcome had never even crossed my mind. Once it broke, my shock at this result only made me feel stupid because of course the window would break. How could I not have known that? How could I not have seen how this would end? My explanation was one that would become my default for the next few decades. I was obviously a moron. Chapter 5. I probably should have worn a helmet. My good friend Tim lived far outside the village of Salmo in a little settlement called Nelway. I think it might have been technically classified as a ghost town. There were three hippie families there and Tim didn't have indoor plumbing for a toilet. Instead, they had an outhouse that they used during the day and a little porta potty that they used during the night. 
That was always a fun and disgusting adventure. They also didn't have many doors on rooms inside the house. The porta potty was placed at the bottom of the stairs that led from the main living room to the unfinished upstairs bedrooms. There was no privacy other than a flimsy curtain that blocked off the area from the living room. However, it was also a high traffic area for all members of the family. It was bad enough that I had to poop in a bucket during the middle of the night when I slept over, but I also had to do it as quickly as possible for fear that someone would come along and catch me with my pants down, literally. Anyway, I'm not really sure how I got onto that subject. One of the other kids who lived near Tim was a girl named Rosie, who I kind of liked in a grade two kind of way. Do I even need to say that the roads all around this hippie village were unpaved? Of course they were. They were long, straight, and perfect for gathering speed on a bike. Tim was a genius. Literally, he was a gifted student and did everything well academically. Not so much with the physical coordination, though. Jeez, I I still haven't even got into this story, which actually isn't very long at all. So, Tim wiped out on his bike on this gravel road. I knew this because he wasn't at school one day, and Rosie told us of his grave injuries. She said that she'd heard a knock at the door, and when she'd opened it, she'd seen Tim standing there with his entire face covered in blood. What an image this created in my mind. However, it also triggered a need for some of this attention that was being rapidly directed toward my absent friend. Oh, that happened to me too, I proclaimed. The other kid's head swiveled in my direction, thirsty for more tales of gore, and I created a highly original story on the spot. One time I was riding my bike down a gravel road, and I was going really fast, and then my front tire hit a rock, and I went over my handlebars and landed on my face on the ground, and I was bleeding everywhere. Instead of basking in the attention and belated sympathy that I hoped this tale would generate, I saw doubt swim in the eyes of my classmates. Somehow, they seemed to know intuitively that I was lying. There were no follow-up questions, no exclamations of horror, and no gentle hands of comfort laid on my shoulders. Rather, they all looked away, back to Rosie, and started asking more questions about Tim. The really ironic thing is that by the time I escaped my childhood in Salmo, I didn't need to make up fantastic but obviously false and plagiarized stories of biking horror. I had many legitimate examples to share. Two in particular stood out to me. Our bus stop in rural Erie, the literal ghost town where I lived, was about 500 feet from our house. That doesn't sound far, but when you're a little kid, waiting unsupervised by the side of the highway for the school bus, it sure feels far from home. Anyway, the street leading from our house up to the bus stop was a long, gentle, straight slope. In other words, it made the perfect runway upon which to gain speed for spectacular bike tricks. One day, as I was virtually flying down this launching pad, I decided to impress my younger brothers by putting my feet up on my handlebars. Not satisfied with this daredevil display, I decided to up my own ante by subtracting my hands from the equation. I'm sure I had seen this somewhere in a movie or video or something, but I underestimated two vital aspects of the stunt. The first is the difficulty of controlling a speed wobble. We've all seen, and some may have experienced, a speed wobble. When traveling at high speed, the slightest change in weight can have a huge impact on the balance of the vehicle, be it a skateboard, motorcycle, or in this case, BMX death trap. The speed wobble is just as it sounds, with the bike rocking rapidly from side to side as it hurdles forward. I guess I was going pretty fast because as soon as I took my hands off, the speed wobble began bucking me like a rodeo bull. 
This is where the second aspect that I had underestimated rose to the forefront. I had grossly overestimated my skill at steering a bike with my feet. Once I realized that my feet were going to fail me, I tried to remove them from the handlebars. But in the midst of panic, I forgot to grab with my hands again, leaving me momentarily in the midst of a speed wobble, off balance, with no limbs attached to the handlebars at all. I say momentarily because this situation did not last long. Soon, the bull finished its bucking, sending me launching like my professional wrestling heroes leaping from the top rope for a finishing elbow smash. Unfortunately, in my case, the recipient was not a willing foe in spandex, but the hard, unforgiving asphalt. The pain was intense, probably worse than anything I had ever experienced up to that point. My arm was gushing blood, and I ran as fast as I could to my house, screaming as if amputation was the only cure. Instead, my dad calmly cleaned the wound and told me he was going to put something on it called mercurochrome, which was some kind of iodine, I think. Needless to say, I wasn't too thrilled about the prospect of pouring medicine into my gaping wound, but my dad told me that it wouldn't sting at all. Reassured by his words, I consented to the treatment. But he lied. A short time later that summer, I was swimming in the public pool. The scab on my elbow was gigantic and so thick that I couldn't even begin to pick it. This didn't stop me from jumping into a pool with all the other kids, of course, because nobody thought that was gross, apparently. Man, have things changed. Anyway... I had spent a long time in the pool, as we did every day of the summer in Salmo, when I felt something flapping and touching my arm. I looked down at my arm as I climbed up the ladder and was surprised to see my waterlogged scab hanging down from a single point of attachment. At the time, I was fascinated to see the layers that had been peeled off by my accident as the pores on my skin stood out in sharp relief to the surrounding area, like a permanent case of goosebumps. I simply detached the scab from its remaining anchor and like the responsible kid that I was, quickly tossed it over the fence before anyone else could see it. Oh yeah, I knew it was gross. And I knew that everyone else would think it was gross, and I had to get rid of the evidence fast. And I think I'm going to puke now. Another great moment in BMX occurred when my brothers and I were determined to build the best jump possible out of the scrap lumber and garbage we had lying around our little redneck homestead. We began with a simple but effective double 2x4 in plywood special, which was able to produce some decent distance, but almost no lift. As kids with brains like ours typically do, we gradually upped the risk, and the reward followed along, as the greater ramp height inevitably led to greater jump height. However, as kids with brains like ours often do, we engaged in some simple miscalculations, concluding that if we increased the ramp height by six inches, we would increase the jump height by a similar amount. If this was true, what if we increased by 18 inches all at once? With no test runs or quick physics calculations, I volunteered to be the hero, demonstrating the peak achievement of our ramp building prowess. I returned to the bus stop 500 feet away and began pedaling as fast as I could. No fancy tricks this time. Just pure speed. As I hit the ramp, oh, did I mention that we increased the height of the ramp but not the length of the ramp? I'll leave it up to you math geniuses to figure it out, but the long story short is that the ramp was on a greater than 45 degree angle. As I hit the ramp, instead of flying onto glory, I flew over the handlebars. Well, that's not exactly accurate. I don't fully remember exactly what happened, but as far as I can piece together, I ended up upside down in the air, perhaps still astride my death machine. Gravity quickly won the argument, however, and I landed with full force on my bare head on the pavement. We didn't need no stinking helmets. 
Such a pain I had never experienced. Does that sound familiar? I literally crawled from the road across our gravel driveway and tried to make it up the stairs. I think I passed out at one point, and I was crying so hard I couldn't even make sounds come out of my mouth. Like one of those terrible dreams where you're screaming for help but no one can hear you. One of my brothers had run into the house ahead of me to get my mom, who came out the front door to see me half dead on the front steps, unable to move any farther on my own. Somehow, she managed to get me up and inside the house, where I lay on the couch with an ice pack, most likely some frozen peas, on my head. After I'd been lying there in incredible pain for what felt like a very short time, my mom announced that we would be leaving for piano lessons and that I needed to get ready. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Are you serious? Piano lessons? I just about died out there. However, I think my mom was a bit desensitized to this kind of thing by this point and didn't really take me seriously. She feels terrible about it to this day and is probably a bit horrified that it is now recorded for the world to digest and judge, but I have never had hard feelings toward her for it. In the end, I made her aware of the seriousness of my injury when, while waiting patiently outside the piano teacher's studio, I began to feel more and more sick to my stomach. I didn't know at the time that this was a sign of a serious concussion. However, the nausea finally got to be too much. For some reason, instead of just using my teacher's bathroom... I wandered out into the front yard, right in front of the big picture window that looked out from the studio. There, Mrs. Schreiner and my brother Spencer, seated together on the piano bench, had a front row seat as I puked all over the lawn. The shame my mom felt when she came to pick us up, only to be told that I hadn't had my lesson that day because I was obviously too injured, was probably great. But like I said, being married to my dad, she'd seen worse. And with my brothers, the worst was yet to come. Chapter 6. I can do that. Childhood is full of delusion. We think we're sneakier than we are, smarter than we are, bigger than we are, stronger than we are, and safer than we are. Most of these delusions have a healthy, insulating effect for us. Imagine how overwhelming it would be if children realized that they knew nothing, could do almost nothing, and were actually in near-constant danger. The shadow side of these delusions is that they are eventually revealed as such, and the world rarely teaches these lessons in gentle ways. We might get embarrassed by the superior strength of someone older, get the answers wrong that we were so sure of, get caught performing some act that we were forbidden to attempt, and in the case of safety, we might end up bruised and bleeding in the dirt. Or on the pavement. Or at the bottom of the pool or in countless other places where our confidence may wreak physical havoc, stripping delusion with merciless frankness. For example, after watching some movie as a young kid, I got the idea that gymnastic moves like flips and such were not actually as hard as people might think. All you really needed was the right setup, I reasoned. After all, those kids on the TV can do backflips, and I'm just as cool as they are, because of course coolness is all that is required to perform any athletic feat, as we all know. Anyway... I took our small stepladder into the living room, along with several couch cushions and pillows, and made my preparations for glory. See, I wasn't totally reckless. I knew there was a slight chance of injury, so I readied my landing spot by layering some bedding on the floor at the foot of the ladder. It was only a four-step ladder, probably about three feet tall, but I was only about four and a half feet tall myself. I reasoned that this would be more than enough space. So, I confidently climbed to the top of the ladder, not even really hesitating, as I launched myself into the air and began a tightly rolled front flip. I was not successful. 
Well, at least I landed on my butt on the cushioning I had prepared. Unfortunately, I was spinning with quite a bit of force, and the cushioning was, to me, surprisingly insubstantial. As my butt threatened to drill a hole in the living room floor, my top teeth sank deep into my tongue, because why not stick your tongue out when attempting risky stunts? Pain was so intense and so unexpected. The last place I thought I would be hurting following this adventure was my tongue. I panicked and ran, confused to the bathroom to check the damage in the mirror, and was both shocked and excited to see blood pooling on the surface of my tongue. While it hurt, I also thought it looked pretty cool. I also knew that I couldn't tell my mom what had happened because she would probably teach me some valuable lesson about not doing stuff like that. Chapter 7 A Terrible Carpenter Along with a lack of indoor bathroom amenities, Tim's house did not have a TV. This might have had some connection with Tim's academic success, but it definitely had a connection to his collection of hobbies. He built Lego, he read books, and he built models. Not model cars, but model Star Wars spaceships. He had several of these, and they were displayed on a shelf in his bedroom. Tim shared a bunk bed with his brother, and when I went to play at his house, the bunk bed became a place of adventure. I remember one time when I was on the top bunk and quickly climbing down, I reached my hand out and placed some of my weight on the shelf that housed his collection. Tim's dad was a carpenter, and as such, you might expect that a shelf in his home would be solidly constructed. If you made this assumption, you would be wrong. In fact, the shelf was not attached to the brackets that it sat on, something that I discovered the hard way. As I placed my weight on the shelf, I was horrified to watch helplessly as it gave way with some of the models simply sliding off onto the floor and some of them soaring majestically and tragically to the same destination. Unfortunately, not all of the models survived. I knew how important these models were to Tim, and I knew how hard they were to build because I had given up in chaotic frustration more than once while trying to build my own models. For some reason, model glue never agreed with me, and model paint never seemed to dry quickly enough. I also was not a fan of following instructions closely. The idea of building a model is appealing, though, and a few years ago I got one for Christmas. I vowed that this time around, as an adult, I would be meticulous and thorough and follow all the steps in order. I did better than I ever had in my life, but in the end, the model ended up with no steering wheel and glue smeared all over the windshield, and is now proudly displayed under a pile of socks in a box in my bedroom. Anyway, when I saw the models crashing in pieces on the floor, I immediately felt sick to my stomach. A combination of shame and anger washed over me, but mostly shame. Tim came rushing into the room to see what all the noise was about, and I began apologizing profusely. He was in shock, but didn't get mad or anything. The same could not be said for his dad, the shoddy shelf maker. He came and poked his head through the curtain that served as the bedroom door. Did I mention hippies? Surveyed the damage and asked what had happened. I explained with flushed cheeks the chain of events that had led to this disaster. In response, he shook his head with a look of disgust and said, Ted, how could you do something so... He hesitated, and I held my breath. My mind finished his sentence ten different ways, but none of them anticipated his actual word. Stupid. While I had felt stupid many times in my life up to this point, this was the first time anyone, especially an adult, had ever uttered the word out loud to me. The shame I felt, tinged with anger, underwent a transformation, becoming anger tinged with shame. In the midst of my quivering stomach and reddened cheeks, 
I felt my heart hardened against him, and I vowed to never like him again, and I didn't. Chapter 8 Son, I am also a weirdo. Our house in Salmo was really quite big, as it needed to be with such a large family. Having said that, even with all that space, we still had to share bedrooms most of the time. I always shared with my older brother, and in many ways the two of us could not have been more different. One thing we had in common, however, was our propensity to pee in weird places. Of course, in Spencer's defense, the only time he was guilty of this was when he was either fully or mostly asleep. I wish I had the same excuse, but nope, I can't blame my weird pee decisions on anything other than a combination of laziness, impulsivity, and not being able to foresee the consequences, and developmental self-centeredness, and weirdness. Of course, you can't discount my innate weirdness. One of the many bedrooms I shared with Spencer was in a space between the living room and the family room on the main floor of the house. There was also a door in my room that led down to the largely unfinished basement. When I think of this arrangement now, I can't help but think that I must not have had much privacy in this room, since it was the only door down to the basement, meaning it must have been a main traffic artery in the house. Anyway, I remember the door to the basement stairs had some weird patterns that appeared in the grain of the wood that created a perfectly monstrous face. What would a door leading to a staircase down to an unfinished basement be without a creepy monster face leering out at the kid in whose bedroom the door was located? There must be some sort of universal cosmic rule that doors to basements in kids' rooms need to have creepy faces in them. If so, my door followed that rule. Why am I talking so much about the door? I thought this story was about pee. The door was really creepy. I remember lying in bed just staring at the face. It had two big swirly eyes and a gaping mouth stretched open in an anguished wail. I had many internal conversations regarding this door, reasoning that it was just a door. And it was just my imagination, with the retort usually along the lines of, yeah, but it kind of looks like Freddy Krueger. So anyway, like I said, on the other side of this door was a wooden stairway with no railing leading down to our unfinished basement. The stairs were kind of hazardous, but somehow we all managed to survive. Although my younger brother Ben did have a serious fall one time and had the biggest bump on his head that I had ever seen in my life, it looked like someone had put a hockey puck under the skin on his forehead the way it swelled up. I thought he was going to die, but he didn't. During the middle of the night, when I would wake up, bladder bursting, I had a choice to make. I could either get out of bed and make my way through the house to the small bathroom, or I could approach the doorway to the threshold of hell, stand at the top of the stairs, and pee down the stairs into the basement. I often chose the latter. Seriously? How did I think that this was a good idea, or even remotely defensible? It's not like it was a construction site in the basement. It was unfinished, but we all did stuff down there all the time. Our TV was down there, some toys were down there, my dad's workbench was down there, and we all used the space on a regular basis. Somehow, this was all put to the side during the middle of the night, with the only priorities being my need to 1. Empty my bladder, and 2. Avoid walking more than 10 steps. Oddly enough, no comment was ever made about an odd smell in the basement. Having gotten away with it, there appeared to be no consequence, and so I continued to sporadically use this backup bathroom. A few years later, when my bedroom had been relocated to the basement, I once again made some very questionable urine and laziness-based decisions. My room in the basement was a long distance from the nearest bathroom, to be fair. 
I reasoned that now that I was in the basement, it wouldn't make much sense to go to the top of the stairs and pee down the stairs, so I came up with an alternative plan. In my dad's basement workshop, and I use that term generously, there was a floor drain. Of course, being a kid, a dark hole in the floor must only lead to a deep bottomless pit and would therefore be an ideal place to pee in an emergency. So I began to employ this new location from time to time. It finally caught up to me one day, however, when my dad asked if I had any idea why it smelled so much like pee over by his workbench. My stomach clenched, but I seamlessly lied that I had no idea why. He accepted my answer, but probably knew that I was lying, and went back to whatever he was doing. Probably because he didn't press the matter further, I felt very guilty. Later, I found my mom and confessed my weird habit to her. Rather than scold me, she told me that I should go and tell my dad the truth. I followed her direction and found my dad, then tearfully admitted my sin. I was shocked by his response. He told me that he was glad that I had told him the truth and that he understood where I was coming from, that when he was a kid, he had done virtually the exact same thing. Rarely have I loved my dad more than in that moment when he accepted my weirdness and informed me that I had come by it honestly.